Hello, and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. I am not your host, Brandy Miller. I am Erna Kim Hackett, longtime friend of Brandy, founder of Liberated Together, and occasional podcast guest. Today, we'll be turning the tables on Brandy and putting her in the interview seat. I am here to help celebrate the three-year anniversary of Reclaiming My Theology and reaching almost 100 episodes. We will get to hear about how a podcast that was only supposed to be 10 episodes long grew into this beautiful extended journey. If you've appreciated the work that Brandy has done over the last couple of years, then please consider joining her Patreon. And today, I am joined by Brandy Miller to talk about her and her journey as host of this podcast. She's a brilliant thinker, an amazing cook, collector of many obscure and random hobbies, and someone I have seen change and grow in a beautiful way as she has done this work over the last few years. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Brandy Miller. Okay. Well, hello and welcome. My, how the tables have turned, (laughs) how the turns have tabled. I will be interviewing your regular host, Brandy Miller, because we are celebrating three years of Reclaiming My Theology podcast. How does it feel even when you hear that? I mean, it feels super surreal and very wild because when I started the podcast, I thought it was going to be 10 episodes and now we're three years in and... I kind of can't believe I get to do this with my time. Yes, 10 episodes to almost 100 episodes. So we're marking three years. We're marking 91 episodes down, so almost to 100 episodes. I think you said 7,000 minutes? Yeah, yeah, like 115 <laughs> hours, 114 hours of podcasting. My God. That's incredible. So let's just rewind, because I know that when you launched this, that was not the plan. So let's all. just rewind, take folks back to even before you started this. What year was it and what was in your mind? You know, if you can like really go back into what you were thinking, what your um, goals were in doing this and and why did you think it would be just 10? Yeah, so I started the podcast uh, on June 3rd, 2020, which is... <laughs> A wild time to be starting a podcast. In hindsight, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is wild. Um, but I, it was, you know, June 3rd is my birthday. And so it was, my 30th birthday was coming up and that felt like a big milestone. And I had set these arbitrary goals before I turned 30, which were to write a book, to learn to ride and buy a motorcycle and to learn to do a standing backflip. And if anyone knows me, it's not surprising that those would be like the eclectic kind of range of things I would want to do. But by that point, I had only accomplished one of them and it was learning to ride and buying a motorcycle. And so... When I was thinking about the book stuff, like I had been approached by a book agent, but there was something about books at the time that felt really challenging to me because I think that books are read as more authoritative than they are, and they don't always take the character of the person writing the book into account in a substantial way. And so Mm -hmm. as I was thinking about what would be a more character forward way to engage, podcasting felt like an interesting way to do that and to think about white supremacy specifically because that's what I'd been spending my 10 years of full-time vocational ministry thinking about and integrating with college students specifically. And so when I was like, well, I don't want to write a book so I don't feel like that's going to, I don't feel like I'm going to believe the same things right now that I will in 10 years. And I know that's always the case in those kinds of thought projects, but podcasting felt like a more dialogical way to explore things and to, to imply something that felt important to me at the time, which was that these are open questions. These are open topics that we're engaging with. And we are only participating in one part of a broader dialogue about these things. And so I thought it was going to be 10 episodes because I had picked 10 characteristics of white supremacy that had most impacted my ministry and my students and my own type of leadership formation and development. And so I thought it was going to be 10. And then it really, really wasn't. And then it really wasn't. And do you think that part of why you kept going is because we were in shelter in place, because our lives had gotten so narrowed, more isolated, more focused? Did you just have more capacity as you did it? Did you just realize there was more conversations you wanted to have? What do you think kept it going? Well, there are two things that come to mind. One is that George Floyd was killed right around the time I started the podcast. And so there was this kind of racial uprising that was happening that 10 episodes didn't feel sufficient to make sense of, especially since we were seeing at that time a particular rise of violent Christian nationalism, the kind of undercurrents of violent patriarchal white supremacy were on display everywhere and people just needed interpretation. And I think that so much of the work of 
unlearning systems of injustice in our own being is unintuitive. And the only option that a lot of us have is to read really inaccessible academic material and then hope that it makes us better people. And what I was finding was that the people that I was interviewing on the podcast are just regular people doing the work. And it was really helpful for people listening to hear regular people doing the work, but who were also interested in faith formation and theology. And so that was part of it. And then honestly, it just was a, a, a spike in my curiosity. The more questions mm -hmm. that we were asking, the more the fewer answers we had. And so we would do a topic and then I'd be like, oh my gosh, well, now we have to do this other topic because we started to talk about this and now I'm curious about that. And so in some ways it was a pastoral project that kept it going and some parts of it, it was a curiosity project on my own end. I love that because I think that that's very true to what I know of who you are, which is like intellectual curiosity is really energizing to you and that you would be in these conversations, letting yourself figure out what, what you want to explore. Because I think so many conversations around theology, people experience them as very dogmatic, very closed set, very sentences with a period at the end mm -hmm. versus what you just said, open-ended. And I think that alone is probably what drew people in. Mm -hmm. um, the accessibility to complex topics and the sense that folks were invited into the conversation. I am curious because, you know, you did the whole first, what, year and a half of the podcast in Shelter in Place? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things people will be curious about is how did you figure out who you would invite on? I know since I was your second guest <laughs> that you started with your friends and collaborators. Mm -hmm. um, I think people would be curious to know 91 episodes later, where do you even find all these conversation partners? Yeah, so the thing about it for me that's been really important is that most of these folks are my friends. And, and that goes back to the character piece because I think there are a lot of people out there who are thinking about the work, but who aren't doing the work or who are thinking about the work, but it's disembodied from their day-to-day -day lives. And so for me to know people's lives and to know their impact and to know who they are when no one's watching. Like, I, I just felt like that felt really important to me. And so more than someone writing a book or being Christian progressive fancy or something, I wanted people who could take concepts and make them accessible. Like access has been one of the primary things for me that's been important. And so while I know I still have a lot of barriers to access in what we're doing, some of it has been choosing not to speak to just academics on these issues or quote unquote experts, but rather saying, you know, you and I can talk. And because we've been doing this together on the ground, it means something. And mm -hmm. people aren't going to find the people that I know on bookshelves all the time or in other spaces, but they are going to find the, the folks who are really important in our formation, right? Like they're, and some of who we've had on the podcast, like Dr. Amy Jill Levine or Dr. Willie Jennings or Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, like those folks are important, but their work is accessible because of their status, really, because of their education. And so I wanted regular people who I knew to have an opportunity, one, to shine, because I love my people. And I feel like if I can give my people a chance to be seen and out in the world, that is a gift to me. And that I think it creates a point of access by not having everyone have to be a celebrity or a Christian celebrity in order to be seen as validly contributing to theology, because a huge part of this podcast is recognizing that we're always doing theology. We're all doing theology theology as womanists would call it, is just God talk. And so if I can express to people that God talk can happen in a variety of ways from a variety of social positions, that's a win for me. I love that. I love that. I think you and I share that value of theology is not meant to belong to those who can pay mm -hmm. for 15 years of full-time higher mm -hmm. education, but that it is something that we live out. And that and that we want to be hearing from people who are doing God talk while living it out. That's been a really interesting dynamic for me to realize that people's theological work and people's social justice work are so often just disembodied abstract ideas mm -hmm. that they claim allegiance to. And there isn't necessarily that press to be living it out. And so I love that inviting people who are finding ways to live it out in different ways. Mm. I think that's exciting. Um, I think one thing that's so interesting about you as someone who 
holds a lot of conversations that many would consider deconstructing Christianity or critiquing Christianity, but you work at a whole ass church. (laughs) (laughs) I sure do. I sure do work at a whole ass church. (laughs) And as you like to say, you're like, I am still for real Christian. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I think that that's worth talking about because Mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of folks, and I would name particularly white folks who have done deconstruction work, move towards progressive spaces, who that path has equated with no longer considering themselves Christian, no longer considering themselves a follower Mm -hmm. of Jesus. And how does that work for you? And why do you think it has played out differently for you? So there are a couple things I want to say about that. One is that I understand for folks who begin to unravel the pieces and encounter their own trauma and the disconnect and the things about Christianity that don't make any sense. There are folks who listen who are not Christian, never been Christian, have no interest in being Christian ever. And I and I want to validate that experience that a lot of our journeys take us to that place. And that's fair. I hold that in deep tension, however, with some of the privilege that there is to disregard the lived experiences of other people when something can't be validated in the mind. And I think what I see in a lot of deconstruction space is that the intellect takes over what is, for many of us, like a heart or embodied or mystery thing. And so Mm -hmm. because academia turns away from mystery so quickly, a lot of us very quickly throw away the mysterious experiences that we've had or justify them or just say, well, you know, it's just because they were playing oceans and B flat and it made me and they changed the lights and, you know, like it made me feel a thing and then the story. And I'm like, okay, yeah, there is some of that. But like. I also think there are these profound encounters that we have with the divine that we don't just have to shit on just because we don't understand them or because we have reasons to not understand them. And so for me, I think it's important to hold the tension of, and I'm sorry, I call that privilege because when I think about like old black folks who have been in the struggle forever, who have this mysterious, mysterious faith that God will have come, that God has come through for them in their lives. I'm not going to turn to auntie and be like, Mm, but you just haven't read the literature because what she's experienced in her body is a valid form of spirituality and Christianity that I hold really intimately as I have these conversations. And so it is a privilege to deconstruct in the way that many people deconstruct, which is why I call deconstruction a white project most of the time, is because it is worshiping the written word. It is focused on objectivity and it loses mystery. Those are hard tensions to hold because I'm not trying to discount someone's trauma or their logic or their mind, but I'm also not trying to discount what I think disproportionately affects poor communities of color, this kind of washing out of their faith and de like making it seem uh, lesser or insufficient because it cannot be explained or articulated. And so I hate seeing deconstruction people being like, oh, these peons over here who just believe in the mystery of God. And I'm like, okay, that's some nonsense that your own values wouldn't allow you to participate in in any other way. And so I think that that's like, those are kind of the ideological concepts for me that are important. But for me personally, like, I just, I love Jesus. Like, I mean, Rachel Held Evans has said it, you know, before she passed, which was like the story of Jesus is the one I'm most willing to be wrong about. And Mm. that feels true for me. Like, regardless of what I know or don't know, what I experience or don't experience, I love the story of Jesus. I love the Bible. I love what can be done with the Bible. I treat the Bible like a little intellectual playground and a place to interact with my own emotions and my own soul and my own relationships. It's a place where I learn to admit that I'm wrong. It's a place where I bring a lot of questions and emotional things. And I think in that connection to scripture, what I'll call the Holy Spirit, my own experiences that I can't explain, and the people of the church, I don't, I don't know that I could walk away from that. And maybe, maybe I could, but I just, I, I feel like I don't feel really black being like, God's brought me too far to leave me. And I, I just have loved my time with Jesus and I, and I, and I can't really sacrifice that for anything. And I think if I can give people some of the experiences that I've had that have been given to me, even if people don't decide to follow Jesus or be Christian or whatever, I'm like, at least that could be a redemptive experience in some way. And so I think that it can both be like a prophetic for the good of what Christianity can be, but also for me, just like, I love Jesus and I can't, I can't get past that. And no matter how much intellectual work I do, no matter how much research or like shitting on my own experiences I do, I keep coming back to loving Jesus. (laughs) 
I'm laughing at that shitting on my own experience. <laughs> <laughs> my own actions. I love that, Brandy. And I think that that's really beautiful. And imp- I love that you offer that, especially as someone I think that people experience as being very intellectual and clearly very brilliant. I think that the invitation to be like, yeah, I you are an intellectually rigorous person. And yet... I, part of what I hear underneath is you're not going to take some of the rigid dualism and binary thinking that so many of us are trying to move away from, mm-hmm. but bring it with you and then just start sorting good and bad differently. Yep. Um, and particularly, I feel that, and this kind of sets up for a question I wanted to ask, which is how do you feel like your experience as a Black woman shapes how you approach these, approach these conversations? But I feel like you already pulled from that when you're like, you're not going to go up to black elders, black grandmas, black aunties who are going to pray in a way that many of us might call triggering. Same thing with like my immigrant auntie who's still Seventh-day Adventist, but she she called me the other day and she's like, just know, she's saying this all in Korean, every morning your uncle and I, we pray for our three sons and then we pray for you by name. How am I not receiving that as a sacred thing? Hmm. Do I intercessory pray every morning nowadays? I barely did that in my most evangelical days. (laughs) But do I think what she is doing is sacred? And am I honored Mm. by it? Yes. And I hear Mm -hmm. something, just the ability to hold all of that without sorting everything into such sort of good, bad binaries. Absolutely. Um, But yeah, maybe to just ask you to talk a little bit more, because one of the things I was joking about with you (laughs) was... People want to get to know you. They hear your voice. They've connected with you literally for hours. Um, But they don't always get, you know, to pull back the curtain on the person of Brandy. So, Sam, how do you feel like your just identity as a Black woman? And as both of us being biracial, we often talk about how we identify and that I choose to identify as a Korean American, though I'm biracial, Korean and white, and you identify as a Black woman, Mm -hmm. though you are biracial. And I'd be curious how you think that comes together into the work you do. I mean, it feels like a really big question. It does. How does being a black woman shape you? It's like, how do you sort out the fundamental worldviews that shape who you are from the work that you're doing? And I think the answer is you can't. And so Mm -hmm. I think there are ways that I'm probably fundamentally unaware of how I bring in who I am as a black woman. And I think that's fine because I do know that. And I know that I'm not trying to speak to everybody. And so when I think about what it means to be a black woman, it means that I'm always thinking about other black women and then women of color as a whole when I'm thinking about my work. Like my work is not centered on white people. My work is not necessarily for white people. It benefits white people. Like white people can be in the room, but the direction of the conversations are not for white folks. And so I think mm-hmm. that's the main the main thing for me really is like in being a black woman, I'm trying to make theology and the world better for black women. Because I think mm-hmm. if we make the world better for black and trans women, we're going to make the world better. And so Mm -hmm. I think it makes my focus super sharp, even if it's accessible to other people. And I'm not trying to be like, this is a black women's podcast, because that's not what that is. It's a black woman's podcast, which means that it will point a certain direction, but it goes beyond that. And I also think it means that a lot of the work that I do uh, sits in the place of Midrash. So um, kind of reading the story between the stories of scripture and exploring that. And anyone who's listened to the podcast will know that I love to ideate around scripture and ask the question, what if, or ask the question, well, what would happen if this is what was going on here? What were they thinking or what would it have felt like? And so trying to create a more embodied expression or experience of biblical interpretation and spiritual the interpretation of spiritual practices. And so that's been really important for me to sit in that middle space, but then also just to let there be mystery. Because I know a lot of hella academic black women, but I do not know a single academic black woman who also is not deeply spiritual. And Mm -hmm. so I think that black women have a certain access point that many other cultures and cultural and racial, cultural, racial and gender identities don't have in the same way in their kind of legacy that black women Mm -hmm. do. And so I think black women have that connection of intellect and spirit, regardless of educational background that plays in different types of ways. And so I think I can feel that in myself and I can't necessarily articulate that legacy in a, like, here's a four point, you know, thing about that. But I think that it does shape who I am because so much of the work I do does sound intellectual, but it comes from a heart and body space. 
that I think I've learned to articulate and to validate through my experience of being a black woman and being in relationship with other black women. I love that. I love that. I'm curious how you feel like if you look about at where you were at as a person in June 2020, and here we are, June 2023, how would you articulate kind of your, hold on, what's the word I'm thinking? Not transformation, just kind of your journey, you -hmm. know, as a person around your own spirituality, around your sense of identity. How has Mm -hmm. doing this work and surviving the last (laughs) three years, um, are there things that stand out to you about how you feel like you've become different? Because I don't think you're the same exactly positionally as you were, you know, or even as a person. so I used to tease Brandy a lot. My nickname for her was Baby Robot when I first met her many years ago. And then we were talking more recently, like that's not her nickname anymore because she's become a different person, a softer mm-hmm. person, someone who I think um, is more comfortable with the tenderness that she brings into the world. And so I know that as someone who's friends with you, I would be curious about how you experience that in yourself and even see that connected mm-hmm. to the work you do. Yeah, so I think going even back to the question about when I started the podcast and thought it was going to be 10 episodes, the project was really for me. Like it was mm-hmm. for me to reflect on the 10 years of ministry I had had and to commemorate these experiences that I had had and to want to remember and to share with a small group of people who I thought would be interested the reflections that I had had. It felt a little bit like a, you know, like when people do like a Facebook thing to be like, well, I just finished my job of however many years and here's like my 10 paragraph thing and then. People who like it are like, great, here's a memory I had or whatever. I'm like, okay, I kind of thought that it would be the podcast version of that. And mm-hmm. what ended up happening is we did the, as, as we did the podcast, people started to tell me their stories. Mm-hmm. And I think that that had felt really important to me because at the time, I don't know that I actually believed particularly deeply in the value of story in that way. I think I could have said like, testimony or like you know you write a fundraising letter and you need someone's like three sentence story about transformation but I think like in my body I didn't really validate story as a functional avenue to the divine nor to Mm. self um like your stories were things that like happened to you and then you like interpret those things in your mind and then you become a better person you know like I think that's that exchange was happening and so when I think about how people's story shaped me, I would hear people talking about how as they listen to the podcast, they like realize they needed to leave their church or quit a job or get a divorce or reconcile with someone in their family or start rehab or, you know, like there were just like a lot of things that people were experiencing in ways that I was not intending for them to experience. And so we were having a conversation about perfectionism and I'm like, yeah, like let's all be nicer to ourselves. And people were like, no, like I fundamentally like, avoided therapy because I didn't know that I could and like was wrestling with suicide ideation and this podcast gave me an on-ramp to start therapy and now I'm healthier than I've ever been Mm. and how can you not be shaped by that stuff like how Mm. can you not be moved by the life-saving impact of liberated theology Mm. like I'm doing the thing I like and care about in my mind but people's hearts are being moved and as people's hearts and their bodies and their lives are changed so was mine And so I think Mm. I just felt fundamentally shaped by how people mirrored their stories back to me and how open and free that made me feel to continue to do it. Because I think it actually made made me feel two things. One, like a fuck ton of stress because (laughs) (laughs) I was like, bro, I did not tell y'all to do that. Like I did not say that. I'd be like, don't bitch the podcast, everybody. And someone would be like, I just found your podcast. I listened to 14 hours of it. I'm like, oh. (laughs) So I think... The thing I joke is that I became the accidental pastor of a digital megachurch in like three months. And so it just Mm -hmm. like, there was the stress component, but then there was the profoundness of like coalescing a group of people who were telling their stories to each other and having their story reflected in the theology we were doing that I think just laid some groundwork for me to be softer, for me Mm -hmm. to hold those stories with validity. And honestly, I started a therapy journey like right around that time. And so I was in therapy learning how to name and engage with my emotions better to deal with my own like personal stuff and like family stuff. And I was exploring what it meant to be me in that season specifically. So when I asked that question, like, what does it mean to be you? It's because I was asking that question of myself, like in 2020, we're in lockdown. There's a racial uprising happening. We're seeing violence against queer folks. 
what does it mean to be me in that? Mm. What does it mean to be if me living with my best friend and moving to a new city and getting ready to quit my conservative evangelical job of 10 years? Like, what does it mean to be me? Mm. What does it mean to be me in my church, in all of those spaces? And so I think that I just, I just didn't know that like the swirling of all of those things alongside this kind of leadership I didn't mean to take on would point me back toward myself. And so I think it made me super reliant on some spiritual practices like um, resting, um, sleeping, uh, prayer in different ways than I used to and realizing that the spiritual practices that carried me in my 20s were not going to carry me in my 30s and that that was okay. And as I engaged with all of that, the stuff that started to come out was like, oh, like I really do identify as a black, black person. Like I'm a black person. I've been treated like a black person. I act like a black person. I do theology like a black person. I'm at church like a black person. And like that's a different reality for me growing up in white communities as a biracial person. And and then the other thing, like, as you've kind of alluded to in the, the like, indirect, which is that, like, I wasn't out then as a queer person. Um, and, I, and I don't talk about some of that very often because I think as we're entering Pride Month, like, all of it's kind of complicated because many people's coming out journeys happen in the midst of pain or dissonance. Like, people come out because they have to or because... Mm -hmm. There is a utility to their queerness, like, and that, and that matters. That matters. And coming out, as we know, is like a white construct that is not accessible to many communities of color. I think specifically about my Asian American Pacific Islander kin and what coming out looks like and means in those spaces. And so I started to ask myself, like, well, I think I've known for a long time that I'm not totally straight, but like, I don't I identify as queer, but like, I don't tell anybody because people ask a lot of questions. Like, well, what does that mean to be queer? And I'm like, I don't know. I just feel it you know like I can just mm. I just feel it and so I started to ask more questions as I started to do more talking about queerness on the podcast around my own identity formation and before it didn't feel important to define that or even to be out about that because I wasn't having traumatic experiences of queerness I was just like eh, I feel queer inside <laughs> like that's that, that's what it is <laughs> and so I didn't actually feel the need to talk about it very much mm. but the more that I know theology is an inherently political act the more I started to ask the question, like, what does it mean to me? Does it mean for me to be queer? And so mm. I started that journey of asking those questions and asking, what does that mean about my theology? And how is my queerness already shaping my theology, regardless of whether I'm out or not? Mm -hmm. And that was the thing that made me decide to come out sometime in the last few years. I don't really remember. Like, again, it wasn't a traumatic experience for me, so I don't have a lot of, like, milestoning with it because I felt very comfortable in that journey myself. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's a really convoluted way to be like, yeah, I came out during the podcast and that means something. <laughs> But I love, I think that's so important because if we're talking about reclaiming, I feel like even reclaiming what being queer and reclaiming that journey from whiteness and from a very like binary approach to queerness and how you have to be out in a very particular way to be validated. I think that how you talk about your story and how you're sharing about it feels important and organic and lovely and... Uh, I love that. I love that. And just as you were sharing about that interplay of you offering what you thought was going to be closing remarks to one era <laughs> of your life. Yeah, yeah. But that as you impacted people, they impacted you. Mm -hmm. As they heard your thoughts and your story and they shared how that was changing them, that changed the course of how you thought about the work you were doing. And I love that because I think on one level, making a podcast is a very isolated experience, right? Mm -hmm. It's you, a microphone, one other person and your room, right? <laughs> yes, for yes, many years, 100%. your office was, your recording space was your room. So it's just, and we were in lockdown. Yeah. So one of the things that we joked about was, um, I was like, Brandy, when we come out of shelter in place, you're going to find out that this podcast has meant a lot to people. And you were like, eh, no, aren't I have been ridiculous. <laughs> and then we came out of shelter in place and you met more and more people in person who wanted to share with you and communicate mm -hmm. with you how meaningful the podcast had been to them. And one thing I think is so brilliant about the work you do is you've taken something that for many people is incredibly amorphous, confusing, um, without a lot of clarity about how to move through it. And you've brought some order to it. Mm -hmm. You've brought some categories, some handholds. And I think that's such a gift. And particularly in the years that 
the podcast started when so many folks were confronted with wild amounts of disillusionment around their Christianity. Yeah. I would love to hear um, what that experience has been like for you as we came out of shelter in place and you've had a chance to meet the Reclaiming My Theology community. Um, what has that been like for you? It's been like a lot of things, honestly. Um, one, I feel deeply honored. Like, I feel honored to be a part of people's stories. I feel honored to be a part of people's lives. I feel the intensity of that, too. I feel like the... Um, I've become, for some people, like an authority on things I never intended to be an authority on, and I don't get to interpret how people interpret me. And so mm -hmm. I think there is some vulnerability to that that is interesting when I'm interacting with people, because I can tell that, I mean, like, I've spent time, like, this close, like, I'm touching my ears, like, this close to people, people's heads, and I've never mm -hmm. met these people before. And so when people mm -hmm. are introducing themselves, there's an entire backlog of information in an emotional world that people are having that I am not aware of. And so I can find, I can feel that like where one person who I'm meeting might be feeling connection. I'm like, whoa, I don't know anything about you. Like the first thing I ask people is like, after they say something to me, it's like, can you tell me your name? Mm -hmm. Like, can you tell mm -hmm. me how you got to be in front of me today? You know, mm -hmm. because I want, I want there to be some kind of relational something. And so I can feel some of that like parasocial stuff. I feel all of the honor and I just feel so lucky. Like, I think mm. I feel so lucky to have such amazing people listening because mm. sometimes you start a thing like this and then you end up with a crowd of people and you're like, bro, y'all were not who I was trying to talk to. <laughs> and like, and like, I wasn't, I wasn't, I was, it's like you yell, follow me like out into a void and like a million people that you're like trying not to follow. <laughs> not, that sounds like I'm saying a natural number. I'm not like tons of people start to follow you. And you're like, this is not who I would have handpicked, you know, but I feel like with reclaiming, this is the group of people I want. Mm. It's the group of people I want to be in relationship with, mm. that I want to be impacting, that I want to, frankly, to build a better world with. And so I think the main thing I feel when I meet people from the community is hope for what we could build together. Mm. Like hope for the ways that the day-to-day -day ways that we're being shaped impact the church, the world, people's individual lives, families, the lives of queer kids, the like racial dynamics that are happening in cities, the ways that school boards are created, like all of that feels so important to me. And so I think that the community gives me a lot of hope for what could be in a way that goes far beyond what I expected this podcast to do, which was basically nothing. So low bar, but <laughs> we <laughs> far surpassed that low bar. Um, nothing. So I, I think I, like when I say like, I love the community, I do. And it feels a little weird because it's like, I mean, I feel this way about my church too. Like, I don't know everybody in the church, but I love my church and I think about mm -hmm. my church and I hold my church in my heart and I do work, frankly, like, do you sound really Christian? Like prayerfully and carefully and meditatively out of the depth of my love for folks. And so I feel really lucky. I feel really honored. And to be clear, I'm a really, really introverted person. So sometimes I'm very awkward in those interactions. So oftentimes I feel awkward because I'm like, I'm bad at small talk. I want people to feel like I care about what they're saying and sometimes my body is like new human ah! <laughs> yes so that's all happening all at the same time but mostly yes. mostly love and honor with a sprinkling of awkwardness and an awareness of parasocial power dynamics sure I love all of that I have been with you as people have met you for the first time and knowing how deeply introverted you are I can see that it's a little overwhelming and really sacred at the same yes. time. Yeah. So that to say, don't not introduce yourself if you see me, you know, just know um, I might not give you a transcendent experience of relational glory. <laughs> but <laughs> other, all my interactions with Brandy are transcendent experiences of relational glory. So know that that can be coming down the pipe. Um, I love that. Sorry, that phrase, I utterly lost my train of thought. That That's phrase, not bad. No, it's great. It's fantastic. Well, and just to talk a little bit about the community that's come around you, I do really want to talk about your Patreon community because they've been a critical part of mm -hmm. helping to support your work. And you're really, you know, you're very understated. You know, you kind of open or close your podcast with like, hey, if you want to be a part of the Patreon. But just as someone who really loves your work and knows that the Patreon is an important part of helping to give you the resources, the support, um, 
Annie is an amazing part of your team. I know that there are hopes to be able to grow the team a little bit. You care about your Patreon community so much. For those, here's a little behind the scenes that people won't know. Brandy and I made this like commitment that we were going to hang out during the last election to just mentally and emotionally get ourselves through. And so we were, uh, you know, in in Central Oregon together. And she had promised her Patreon community these beautiful care packages that she was going to like mail to them. But for some reason, we couldn't like get them mailed out where we were. So we had to drive them all back so she had we had me and her my dog our luggage and like 40 boxes <laughs> jammed into this car as we're driving through the just packed ass to elbow and i was like you must really love these patreon people because you're giving them such a high quality you know thing and uh, connection with you. And I know that you're reworking your Patreon community to make it more sustainable for you. Mm. If you guys don't know Brandy, she sets incredibly high bars for herself and everyone around her is like, lower the bar, Brandy, to make it sustainable. Just, I mean, it, and so I think she's trying to rework it for sustainability, which we all support. But I just want to say that um, I want to invite folks, like maybe the Patreon community is something you can be a part of. And that's a wonderful way for you to support Brandy and the work that she's doing because it's it's real work, fam. <laughs> it's real work in just the depth of thinking and prep and thoughtfulness that Brandy puts in to what she puts out into the world. Okay, so she hates me for you know how much I've just been talking about this. <laughs> I, I mean, okay, there's a couple of things. One, and I'm probably gonna do it again. You said Annie's name, and I almost I started like tearing up because like <laughs> y'all gotta know like there aren't a lot of people like Annie. Annie Crawford runs my back end and does like all of our socials and keeps things happening. She keeps me going. Like there are, I always say like, there aren't any white women I would let speak for me except for Annie. And so there is no reclaiming my theology without her. And I just feel like, yeah, I'm like really emotional because I just feel so lucky to, to get to work with her and to get to, she's been in my life for a long time. And I just don't think people understand like the level of pastoral care and desire for the community to be well that Annie does. And, so I just like really want to honor her because I feel like, again, I don't know what the fuck's happened to me in the last few years. I like, get so soft. <laughs> this, this, this is, y'all, that's why we can't call her baby robot anymore because talking about Annie brings her <laughs> just, just thought about it. It's just so important to me that like people know how much she does and how much she cares and like that this whole thing, the, low, the level of quality be, would be far, far, far lower if it weren't for her. And, and I feel honored because that's coming out of who she is she's like mm. not just my employee she is a collaborator in the mm. work of liberative theology for the people and it's just i think people who are behind the scenes do not get enough credit and so i want to give her honor because it's just so important um yeah so i love, love you annie that. thank you for all you do um, yay annie shout out to you woof. <laughs> The surprising twist of the retrospective being yeah. that Annie was the most emotional yeah. part. <laughs> and the connection being the Patreon community helps pay Annie. That's how we support Brandy. And so yes. it's all interconnected. And so, yeah. Um, it, and sorry, the one that. other thing I'll say about the Patreon community is sorry that your level of quality has not been super high lately. I expected there to be like 20 patrons when I started. Um, and there are about 450 of you all. And it does keep the podcast going and it makes it sustainable. And um, I'm going to have to change the levels of how that works so that I'm not um, basically running a small postal service out of my house because that has not worked. So know that in the next couple of days, we will be launching merch and patrons, you will be getting merch packages to close out the last iteration of Patreon and to open up this new one that I think will be higher quality, more sustainable, more functional. And the merch that Annie has designed is fucking cool. So... And as I say to Brandy, I was like, you realize that the 91 episodes of podcasts that you have gifted to people can also be considered part of what folks are getting as a part of your Patreon community. Mm. You're like, always so dismissive of that. I was like, I think some people, if you didn't even send them anything, would feel like the gift of the work you're doing yeah. would be sufficient. So just don't want to overpromise and underdeliver, you know? <laughs> yeah, I do know. That's why my Patreon tanked. <laughs> my own issue to work out in therapy. I was like, oh, I really overpromised fam. I, I, I can't, I can't, if you do my Patreon, you, you'll never hear from me, but thank you. I'm so appreciative. 
So that is its own thing. Um, well, as we're maybe coming toward this back end of this conversation, I would just be curious, you know, when you started, you were really building off a topic you had worked with extensively. And I know mm-hmm. that coming into purity culture, it has been different. And I would just be curious to hear your reflections. What has this process of kind of diving deep into this topic been like for you? And what are some of the, I don't know, how is it kind of impacting you to sit in this conversation for this season? So part of the thing, so the thing with purity culture is that anyone who knows me knows I'm not like really that interested in talking about purity culture as a general sentiment in my life. Like, I would say purity culture worked on me. I grew up in evangelical purity culture, but it wasn't a thing that traumatized me in the same way that like a lot of other things in Christianity did. Hmm. However, I am aware that purity culture is the most damaging thing for a huge majority of Hmm. women, femme-identifying folks, and queer folks. Hmm. And because I sit at the intersection of some of those identities, it's felt important to me to speak to those topics. But there's a reason we didn't do this season earlier, even though I knew that this was kind of like a going to be a really long, kind of tedious season to go through. And it was because you cannot talk about purity culture without first talking about patriarchy and white supremacy, because they are mm-hmm. the foundation of those things. And so in the purity culture series, I've been finding that I talk so much about race and patriarchy and misogyny and masculinity and gender roles and all the stuff that we've been talking about before. So it's been an interesting season because we actually talk less about the Bible and more about Christian culture. And so it Mm -hmm. feels like we may not be reclaiming our theology, quote unquote, but we're reclaiming our lived theology in a way that's a little bit less Bible because we laid like 60 episodes of foundation of Bible to understand this conversation more clearly. And so it's interesting to me when people are coming in just on the purity culture season for the first time, because I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, people probably experience it as very political or like racially abstract but it's a building thing you know like it it is that and so while i like to think of reclaiming my theology as a library it is if you miss kind of those first episodes you miss a lot of the foundation to understand what we're doing now and so i think i often feel like i'm repeating myself in the purity Mm. culture stuff i never want to bore people by being like i've told this story before i've like done this theology before and i'm like oh that's not that the Clarity comes through repetition. And so I think I feel a lot of the pull to be innovative or something internally when my character has actually pushed me back down to, no, be clear. Like Mm -hmm. uh, one of my pastors says often, like, clarity is kindness. Mm -hmm. And and so I'm trying to think about how to engage with clarity as kindness in this season on purity culture. And I want to recognize that when we talk about white supremacy and patriarchy a lot of us still regardless of how embodied it is for us disembody those conversations we're like abstractly white supremacy is hard but when someone's like your body fucking sucks because it exists like that's a little harder to to get away from and so Mm -hmm. i think i feel some of the grief that a lot of people feel and carry into this conversation i'm hearing a lot of terrible stories which like again i want to hear and hold stories of people so i yeah send them honestly annie gets most of them so uh, i see stuff but like annie is the kind of pastoral front line of a lot of that stuff because she's much better at that than I am to be honest and uh god I almost started crying out Annie again my god (laughs) um it yeah it just feels like this season is fundamentally important to people understanding themselves and their own experiences and and it to me it feels a little cyclical like you talk about purity culture and it leads us into thinking about white supremacy and patriarchy we talk about white supremacy and patriarchy. It moves us into talking about purity culture. As we come out of purity culture, we're going to continue to talk about things like homophobia and transphobia, capitalism, American politics, even things like systematic theology and like reclaiming our theology from the very processes that we've used. I give up on the video. Um, okay. The very processes that we've used to come to where we've come to. And so a lot of what we're doing is building and if you're new here and are just in it for the first time, you know, you take what you can. I feel like I'm a sound, I am, I'm Christian as fuck. I don't need to say I sound Christian because I am. Uh, <laughs> the, the thing that feels like live to me is that this scripture, like this, like the word of God goes forth and doesn't come back void and accomplishes the purpose from which, from which it came. Right. Like, and, and what that tells me is that whatever word God has given for you, whatever word creator has given for you is enough for whatever mm-hmm. time you're in. Like to know theology, to reclaim theology, to engage with this kind of life-changing work in whatever topic we're in is the work of being faithful to the word that you've been given now. 
to hold the thing that's in your heart and to let that be enough and to not always need more or bigger theology or bigger paradigms or bigger whatever to be faithful to yourself, to others, and to whatever relationship you do or do not have with creator. And so I think I'm finding that as I wrestle with what it means to be in this season in particular, I keep coming back to more practical things to help people connect to their bodies and to understand that like what they have is enough because so much of patriarchy, white supremacy, purity culture, politics in the U.S. and all the other things we've talked about rest on the fundamental assumption that people are not enough. Mm -hmm. And so while that feels more visceral in purity culture, the cyclical nature of these topics for me is always going to be a building project to try to help people get more free by adding complexity, even if that complexity is not inaccessible complexity, because inaccessible complexity does not mean to make something holy or good or transformative. It just makes things convoluted and confusing. And so we're adding complexity, but in a way that layers our lives, not just bifurcates it into ways that separate us from ourselves again in the same way that that nonsense that we came from did. So straight from what you were saying, but you know. No, but I think that that's really, I think that that temptation, right? That's really where academia takes theology is it has to be like a new, more obscure idea. Yep. And to repeat things means it's not new. I mean, even so much of Instagram culture and social media culture mm -hmm. is about newness. Yep. But I think to stay foundational and to be invited to live into what you know versus trying to move on to something newfangled, like, yeah, that's that's sacred work. That's spiritual practice. I don't I don't know if there's any way to get a, around that. And I love mm -hmm. that. Um, well, maybe just as we're closing, as you're at this kind of three-year mark, almost 100 episodes, um, what are you holding? Like, what do you feel proud of? What's giving you joy and spark as you think about this journey uh, that you've been on? I mean, again, I feel like I just feel so lucky to get to do this yeah. work. Like, I make most of my money and get most of my satisfaction out of sitting with people I care about, talking about things that we care about, to give out to people that we care about, many of whom I'll never meet. And mm. to have a global community of people listening to too many hours of my voice um, and having it be meaningful is a gift that people give to me. Like, I think mm. the thing I always say in my own work is that time is the one thing you'll never get back. Don't waste other people's time. Mm. And I feel like people are honoring my work by listening to it and by applying it and by helping other people get free and one of the like most beautiful things i hear people say is like hey my friend told me to listen to your podcast when we were in this conversation about blank mm. and so i get to imagine these like tables where people are eating together or playing their board games or whatever and then going hey i have a thing that might be good for you and then mm. as the person listens they come back to me and say like this actually shaped my life because my it shaped my friend's life and i feel so lucky to get to make a living doing that kind of person-to-person -person stuff in a way that is mysterious and that I'll never know about. And that, frankly, I don't have to be that responsible for in a lot of ways because it's far away. But like, and I'm so introverted that that would be hard for me. Yeah. So I feel like really grateful for that. But I mostly, I think, feel grateful about how it's changed me. Like, I think that mm. anyone who knows me knows I'm a really different, I mean, I'm not a different person, but I operate really differently than I did mm -hmm. three years ago. I operate with so much more ease and tenderness and gentleness and openness to the world and curiosity and willingness to explore who I am and who others are and to let things be what they are, to let relationships be what they are, to deal with conflict, to own things in my own life, to do therapy work. Like all of that has been shaped by getting to do this work because at the end of the day, I believe that character matters. And mm -hmm. this podcast both forces me to do the character work so I don't become like the pastors I critique all the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm being shaped by every dialogue partner I have on this show. Like I'm learning all the time. And and again, to shout out to our Patreon supporters, like I get to pay every guest that we have on the podcast for their contributions, for their time. And podcasting like doesn't pay like as an industry standard, which I think is so strange, but we get weird. to pay people to share who they are. And I get to learn. And then as I learn from people, I get to be shaped by that. And it's just such a gift. And so I feel like how it's changed me is the most profound part for me, even in how it is changing other people. So even again, as I ask that question, like, what does it mean to be you every week to my guest? That's the question I'm asking all the time as I am interacting with the podcast and what it's meant for me is like, what does it mean to be me three years after this podcast has ended? And that's a lot of what it is. 
I love that. I started. And maybe as like a sneak peek, where do you see it going? You know, it's we're three years in. Is this like a Ted Lasso situation? Like, are we three seasons in done? Are we Grey's Anatomy? Are we 22 seasons in and still going or somewhere in between? What do you imagine kind of the future of the podcast? Let's go more like Gossip Girl, you know, like probably like a few more seasons um, at least. I think I will uh, chase the momentum of what people need and what I'm interested in. And if those mm -hmm. things intersect for however long those things intersect and are helpful, I will do those things. But I think what most people don't recognize is that my primary passion really is the impact of theology on national American politics and therefore global politics. And so I think in the long run, I would love to see Reclaiming My Theology shift from just being a podcast to being a network of particularly women of color creators who are producing theological and political content that helps Christians to navigate the reality that politics is, politics is what happens to people's bodies. And mm -hmm. that if this theology can become more and more embodied in political space someday in the future, maybe five years from now, that would be what I would want to see. And I don't know what that looks like. And I, and I don't really have like the practical skill set to make that dream happen. And so part of the hope is to grow our Patreon and to grow what we're doing in different types of classes and courses and workshops to be able to fund more people to do that kind of liberative work and to have an arm of what we're doing here be tangible political change in local communities and in the national American political landscape. I love that. I love that. I do think that is a little bit of a secret part of your life that people don't know. Yeah. And another secret part of people's lives that you don't, is that is the Gossip Girl references significant. In 2015, when you and I were going through massive amounts of trauma, racial, organizational trauma, <laughs> we were re-watching, or I was watching for the first time and you were re-watching Gossip Girl as a way we were like surviving all this like, <laughs> wild amounts of wh white evangelical trauma during when Ferguson uprising was happening, when BLM was first going. So that's a little behind the scenes because I want to promise people just a little pull behind the curtain. You don't know that part of how we survived all that racial trauma was Gossip Girl. Because we have this XO, is so far. XOXO, this is so far removed from our reality. The escapism was just incredibly yes. helpful in yes. the work that we were doing. So it really was. On that note, let us end there. So fun to have this conversation, Brandy, especially because I got to be with you, talk with you on your second episode yes. and see where it was then and to see it come here and to see it grow so much and so beautifully. And like you say, to see you, yeah, it's like evolve doesn't feel like the the right word. It feel, I think as you say, it feels right to soften. I feel like when I first met you, I met all your brilliance, your mind, I feel like, you know, mm -hmm. and that who you are you know, i'm holding my hands kind of neck up and but then that there's kind of all of brandy's being has softened into her mm -hmm. body um into her heart um into her being in a different way um and that's a tender and beautiful thing to witness especially because so often this kind of work can harden mm -hmm. folks it can lead to such profound disillusionment as to sort of lead to despair and that it has become something so different for you. Yeah. I think that's beautiful and I love yeah. to see it and I love to celebrate that with you. So thank you. Thanks, thanks so for much for letting for me, thanks so much for letting me come in and mark the three-year point. It is my great joy. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for being on and for being one of the primary people who's helped shape me in this journey. It's, it's so significant to me. Yeah, really significant. I just, I love you. I love, I love you, you. lots. So, you know all right. Sorry, audience. It got to just this point now. <laughs> and that is who we are in. We are That's done That's what now. it is. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs>